All right, here we go. Yeah, we are in the book of Zechariah today, and we are looking uh, through this survey. I'm very glad when we get to this book that we are doing a survey of the Scripture rather than deep diving into each individual book. I know sometimes it may feel like a deep dive because I take three chapters and turn it into um, uh, an hour, but uh, we are uh, doing this bit of a survey back, and it's good for a book like this one uh, because in these chapters uh, you will see we'll get into some, some complexity here. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad that we get to do this today through the book of Zechariah. Uh, next week will be uh, Malachi, and that'll be the last one. And we're going to take Christmas break. Uh, so that finishes up the Old Testament. We are almost through the Old Testament. Feels like we've been in this for years together. It also feels like it's just been a couple of, of weeks. So uh, to me, maybe to you, you're like, no, it feels like, feels like years. So um, we are uh, going through, though, uh, looking into this, uh, this book together. Zechariah, a little bit about him. He is, uh, his name means the Lord remembers. A lot of people in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, uh, that bear this name, Zechariah, the Lord remembers. Um, just kind of a, a, a little bit of a, an interesting piece. This guy, Zechariah, is unique in the fact that he was born into a priestly family, uh, just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, he was both a priest and a prophet. Uh, and so it's, that's a unique situation. Most of the prophets did not have that storyline, but Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah are the three um, that had this uh, priest and prophet uh, continual. He was uh, in that first remnant. You know, we've talked about uh, even with Haggai and um, with uh, uh, the different um, remnants that were coming out of exile, right, that were captured in Babylon. They came back. Zechariah was in that first group that came back. So he was in that first 50,000 that left the captivity in Babylon as soon as Cyrus uh, uh, gave the decree that they could go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, Zechariah was in that group. He went with them. Him and Haggai had a very similar ministry. Um, they, now, they're, they're, the way they did it was a little bit different, but their ministry was very similar. Um, in fact, he, uh, he began his ministry. Zechariah started prophesying two months after Haggai started prophesying, uh, which they are the, they are the uh, voices that, would, that told Zerubbabel to continue building the temple. So they had paused, if you remember. Uh, they had started building the temple. They paused in that season of pause. They built their own houses, they built, and they built nice houses. They put some effort into it, put some energy into it. So they built their houses um, and uh, neglected the house of God. And so Haggai and Zechariah were the voices that pushed to rebuild the temple again. They said, let's get work back on the temple. So let's not just, um, uh, reg let's not just uh, forget this. You all have, have run after your own selfish interests. And now that your houses have been built and they're all beautiful, uh, the temple still lays in ruins. How dare you? This is awful. Um, so that was the lifestyles going on. Now, the thing about the, there's some differences in Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, even though they both wanted the temple to be rebuilt, and they both pressed in on that. Uh, Haggai was more about building the temple physically. And Zechariah's book and prophecies are more about the spiritual condition of the people. Because if Haggai says the temple's in ruins, it's a big pile of, of rubble. You all stopped. You didn't finish the job. This is the task. And Zechariah came in and said, now you need to make sure your hearts are right. 
if the temple gets rebuilt and you don't know how to worship God there, it's not going to matter. So if, if you want, we're going to get the temple rebuilt, but ultimately, Zechariah, uh, I've titled today, Looking Way Ahead. Looking Way Ahead. He's a visionary guy, not just because he has these visions that we're going to talk about, and this is crazy story, but he's a guy that says, it's not just about the task today, it's about how the Lord's going to use us tomorrow, how the Lord's going to use all things the next day and the next day and and thousands of years later, as we will find in Zechariah. Uh, he is so focused in on uh, the heart of the people. He talks about um, the different, a couple of different things that show up. Uh, his prophecies, Haggai's are very, very right here, this temple, this temple, this temple. Um, Zacharias are, he looks down through the, through the centuries and will see the Greeks coming. He'll see the Romans coming. He'll see Jesus. He'll see him crucified. He'll see the second coming of Christ. He looks way, way ahead. So when I say he's looking way ahead, he's looking way ahead. Uh, very, very cool how these two prophets um, spoke near the same time. Um, Zechariah also, his ministry lasted a little bit longer. Haggai, if you remember, just was, uh, I mean, just a few months and he was done. And then um, Zechariah had a couple parts in here that we believe, according to the way that it's written, that he did this, uh, these first prophecies and then did, waited a couple years, some more prophecies, and then several years probably for his final prophecies. Um, and so as we see this, as we, as we look at this, remember they're, they're at the same time. Um, and, and one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous about this one is uh, I, I've, I've done a lot of research in the book of Zechariah, a lot. Okay? I, I, am a, I am an avid reader, not because I love to read, but because I love to gain knowledge so that I can use that knowledge to hopefully communicate it as clear as possible. One of the things I heard um, was in a, a, there was a Greg Laurie, which was a, a pastor in America. He was at a Billy Graham crusade one time. After the crusade, Billy goes and gets in the little town car that was going to drive him back to the hotel. Greg Laurie was with him. And he said, he said, Pastor Graham, he said, or Dr. Graham, how in the world uh, does, what does your study time look like? I, I just want to know because you are, you are preaching to millions of people and they are, they are hearing the word of God. They're getting saved. How do you study? Tell me your study habits. And Dr. Graham looked at him and he said, well, I spend about 10 minutes figuring out what to preach and a hundred hours trying to make it as simple for, for me to understand. And, and honestly, when I, the, the more research I do, it comes from that heart. I want to make it simple because I'm a simple person. I, I am not, I, I can't, when I get in a room with somebody that starts using words that are college words, as I call them, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand. Tell me like I'm five, right? Then I'll, I'll be able to understand. And the truth of God's word is, is simple. It may not be easy to live out, but the truth of God's word is, is right. It's true. It's simple. So, um, I spent a lot of, I say all that, I spent a lot of time looking in Zechariah. And, and what I have learned is these are complex. These are not the easiest prophecies to just take out and be like, oh, he's talking about the Greeks here. So this is when they're going to come and do this and this and this. Because the way his prophecies are, are, are the way his visions show up, some of them are, are present day. Some of them are 2,000 years later. Some of them are 100 years later. Some of them are this. Some are, and they kind of bounce back and forth. And you'll kind of see as we go through this. And so um, uh, this is, I, I say all of that. I've done my best to make this understandable for us. Okay. And as, as, if we leave here and we're not more confused, then I'm going to count it a win today uh, because there is a lot into this book. That's, that's part of the reason. And, and I said earlier, I'm very glad we're doing a survey of this 
where we can kind of look at all of it, the whole picture. Because if we just take, we can take one of these prophecies and dig in and we can go down some rabbit holes and be like, okay, we're, we, we don't know what, what book we're even in anymore, right? We've dug so deep. So uh, this is a, it's a tough one. It's complex, difficult to understand. Um, but this picture may give us some clarity. Um, and so rather than just at the end of this thing, we're all dizzy and dazed and don't know what we're doing. So um, we'll, uh, we'll look at this from that 30,000 foot view as we have. Um, and so we're going to see this in three parts. I've broken it up into three parts today. First part will be the future. The second part will be the disciplines, and the third part will be the failures. And I was going to try to make all of them start with the same letter or try to make them all preacher-like, but I, the words make more sense to me this way. So uh, we're gonna, the first part is the future. So we're going to look at these first six chapters as part one. And chapters one through six um, is uh, maybe after we get to the end of this, I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to realize this was insane how this all happened. But uh, there are ten visions in these first six chapters. Um, This is how the book starts. It gives us a date, by the way, which I love it, because then we understood that he was there with Haggai, right? Haggai had started two months later after he started. We see Zechariah starting it because it's in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Um, And so it gives us dates. Uh, I love how he dates dates his uh, prophecies as well throughout his book. Um, but these, uh, these, the first six chapters, this, this is the way it begins. It's these 10 visions that show up. These 10 visions give us a wild picture. Uh, we're not going to expound on every one of these 10 visions, but we're going to look at them all. We're going to talk about them all just so that we get a good understanding of what this was, what this was like to get this, uh, these visions. I do like how uh, as he's going through these visions, um, there's an angel with him. And the angel's helping him explain some things, which is great. That's super cool. Most of the time you get a vision or you get a, a, a prophecy and there's no like, there's no um, uh, immediate translation of that prophecy. There's no immediate definition of it. Um, now, that's why, but that's also a reason it gets a little more complex as we go. So let's just, let's just jump on in. The first um, of these 10 visions uh, is found in uh, the chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 17. Um, and that's the vision of the four horses. There are four horses in this vision. And it's, it's, it's kind of wild. Um, I want to read verse number eight. It says, I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So those two verses give us a little bit. So there's a red horse and then there's, there's three white, white horses behind. So um, he sees this one red and the man identified on this horse is an angel of the Lord and um, other horses are following behind and they rode throughout all the earth. Okay, so I'm not going to read all this text. I encourage you to read it and dig in. It's fun to read. This is one of the fun books in the Bible because there's so many just, I mean, it's like vision and then you turn around and it's like another vision, another vision. Like it's fun. This is like a... a a crazy night of dreams is what it is. Um, so you got these four horses, uh, and this this pictures, and this is um, uh, a a representation of uh, Judah whenever it is di- di- uh, dispersed and scattered, um, and Jerusalem gets trodden down by the Gentiles, while the other nations are not even noticing. Now, this is not what has happened. This is what's going to happen. Okay, it's a vision of a prophecy. So as the temple is being rebuilt. 
uh, what he sees are this this horse, this red horse, um, and this uh, and followed by these other horses, and they come sweeping in, and they're going all around. They come sweeping in, and they leave it uh, trodden. And as they do that, one of the things Zechariah notices is the other nations around Jerusalem don't even seem to care. So it's almost as if let's let's take a moment here. It's almost as if Jerusalem is getting attacked and the other nations around don't want any part of it, so they're turning their back on them, okay? We, we, we can start talking about how this, okay, we get that, right? We see that today, how people are turning their back. So this is a, a prophecy in a time, uh, and we just need to kind of wrap our mind around that's one of the visions. Now the next vision that goes in is a vision of four horns, uh, he sees four horns, and he asks the angel, that interpreting angel, he says, hey, what do they mean? I, I love it. He's like, I lift my eyes, saw four horns. Verse number 19, I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? And he said, these are horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Um, and so he sees these four horns. And this is, um, now this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit of, of, um, of my understanding here, okay? So in my understanding... A horn depicted in the Old Testament was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of this is what's going to come and destroy. Okay, that's what the symbol of the horn almost always is in, throughout the entire scripture. It's a symbol of power. In this prophecy, so he first sees a prophecy of this horse and these other horses, and the, they are riding through all around the, the earth. They destroy the, the, the trodden Jerusalem, the people of God, and the, the other nations are blind. So then the second vision is these four horns, which are symbols of the four world powers, major uh, players in the world, that are the ones that destroy Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to get into who I think that is, because it doesn't necessarily matter, because it's not, it's not written in Scripture, so it's not, it doesn't, doesn't have to matter to us. But as these four horns come in, they are the four powers that were participating in scattering, because it says these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So these are the ones that have come in and punished or, or scattered out the people of God. Then the very next phrase, he's got another vision of four craftsmen or four carpenters, depending on your translation. Uh, and these four craftsmen show up uh, and uh, he asks the angel, he's like, hey, what are they coming to do? What, what are they here for? So he, he kind of asks um, each of the, the angel different things, right? So the first one, he's like, uh, what are these horns? Well, these are the ones that come in. He sees these four craftsmen, and he said, what are they coming to do? So he's got a little bit different question. You know, whenever you go to the Lord sometimes, sometimes I ask the wrong question. You know, sometimes I go to the Lord and I say, why is my daughter sick? And the Lord says, that's not the question that you're supposed to be asking. You're supposed to be asking, what can you learn right now while your daughter, or what does your daughter need today? Or what is your, you know, sometimes I just ask the wrong question. I love how Zechariah asks very specific questions, and they're unique to each, uh, each situation. Um, and so anyway, he says to, uh, the, he says to the angel, what are, they, what are they coming to do? And he says, these guys are, these four craftsmen are the ones that are coming to destroy those horns that scattered Israel. Okay, so he says, you've got these four horns coming in. They're, they're the reason that everybody's scattered. He talks about the four horses first, right? It's the scattering of all the, the people of God. These four horns show up to, they are the ones, they're the ones, the identifiers. 
And then he says these four craftsmen are coming to clean up the work. They're coming to take out the horns. So they're the good guys coming to destroy those who scattered Jerusalem and all the people. Um, and uh, this is the um, uh, terrible, terrible truth and, um, that, that the Gentile nations need to hear. If you, don't, if you come up against Israel, God has a solution for you. He's going to wipe you out. That's what it is. He says, these four craftsmen that show up are the messengers that I'm sending to complete my plan. That's what I'm going to do. And so uh, he, uh, that's how that, that process works. And then he has another vision just right after that um, in chapter 2. This is the man with the measuring line. I love this man with the measuring line. Um, Zechariah asks, where is he going? Right? Each of these questions, very unique, very different. He's like, hey, there's a man with a measuring line. Uh, where, where is he going? Verse, I'll just read number, verse number one. Uh, I lifted my eyes and saw, chapter two, verse one, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. He's got a tape measure, okay? And he says, uh, he says, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Now, as you see this vision, guy walking, out, it'd be a guy, you know, showing up in your vision and he's coming with a measuring tape to measure New Providence, Okay. So he comes up to, to, with, with this fancy measuring tape, and he asks the guy that's, me, that's measuring, what are, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to measure New Providence. Oh, okay. Now here's, here's, the, here's the question, here's the thing. We know that measuring New Providence is not a building. This may be where we gather, but we are New Providence, not the building. The building is where we come to celebrate and worship all the things God does, but the people are new providence, right? So same thing is true with the people of Jerusalem. Listen to what happens next. It says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward. And my page needs to turn. I want to make sure and read it right. And meet him and said to him, run, say to the man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Here's what the angel, so this angel that had been talking to Zechariah takes another angel. They go and meet the guy with the measuring tape and they say, listen, you can't measure Jerusalem with a measuring tape because its inhabitants are the people. Its inhabitants are who God cares for the most. It's not just the, the walled city. It's not just the, the geographical location. He says, my inhabitants, my, my people live way outside the borders. Don't think that they're, they're scattered around. We, they're, you can't measure this. You can't measure this. Sometimes in ministry, um, it bothers me sometimes whenever we try to measure everything. Because I want things that can't be measured necessarily. I want the things that I can't, I can't measure your heart's uh, um, uh, connection with God. I can't measure it. But I want it to grow. Well, how do you know if it's growing, Pastor, if you can't measure it? I don't know. It's intangible. How can you measure Jerusalem if it's about the people, not about the city? How do you do that? And so this uh, beautiful picture gives this whole. Uh, and verse 8, by the way, is the one that if you underline stuff in your Bible or highlight stuff in your Bible, um, if you want a, the greatest warning in the whole world is verse number 8. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know what God is saying there? 
you mess with Jerusalem, you're messing with my baby. And, and there is a, and I, I'm just telling you, this should be on billboards everywhere. Like you, you mess with, with Israel, you're messing with the apple of God's eye. He's not going to be okay with it. He's going to send these four craftsmen to show up, and we're going to get hit by a craftsman. And it is not going to be, he's not going to build us something. He's going to tear something down in us. And so we need to pay close attention. Um, it should definitely, definitely be a, um, a, a, a picture to us. This, this vision, it points to the measuring line, talking about how Israel will be regathered again and how it will be restored. They're scattered uh, and they will become fully restored. Um, and, and so these are the first four visions of Zechariah. Now these first four visions... Uh, I kind of put together as comfort, because here's what what basically these first four visions did. They gave a a comfort. See, you got to remember, let's go back to make sure we understand the context. So there's all these people that are pioneering now in, in the promised land again. They were in captivity. Now they have come. They're building their homes. They're building the temple. They're they're But they're having to deal with hard things. Babylon, they went to the grocery store, picked up food. Uh, the promised land, they have to grow their own food, right? This is a difficult, more difficult lifestyle. So, uh, you, and you know how whenever it gets difficult, sometimes you need some inspiration, sometimes you need some encouragement so that you don't get too discouraged, right? We talked about that with Haggai. There was a lot of discouragement showing up, and so there had to be some encouragement. Those first four visions are there to comfort that remnant of pioneers to uh, trying to rebuild the promised land. Um, and uh, this would... Um, uh, there would, there would be, the, the rest of these visions that show up are, are less about these moments of encouragement and more about let's look way past our time. Um, you know, and dealing right now with, he moves from this encouragement to who you are, because that's the first four visions, right? Here's who you are. You're the people of God. You're the apple of God's eye. Somebody comes to take you down. Let me tell you, God's not going to let that happen. He's going to send a, a he's going to send a, an answer that's going to take care of you because he loves you. Then the next few visions that show up start talking now about the spiritual condition and the spiritual issues that are at hand. As I told you, Haggai was all about rebuilding the temple. Zechariah's first few visions were about, hey, listen, you are the people of God. You, you are loved by God. You are known by God. You are seen by God. It's this beautiful thing. And, but Zechariah is also saying, now, whenever the temple gets built, what are you going to do? You're going, to, you're going to go back to your house that's nice and just kind of live there? Or are you going to show up to the to temple to worship in spirit, in truth, in, in love, in grace? Are you going to show up the right way with the right heart? So these next few uh, uh, visions deal with some of that. The next vision he has is uh, about in chapter 3, Joshua the high priest. Um, Joshua the high priest is seen, I'm just going to kind of summarize this for you, standing in front of the Lord in filthy garments, just filthy garments. And um, as he's standing there, Satan stood there trying to accuse him. Now, if you're standing before the Lord in filthy garments, here's here's the ploy of Satan, by the way. He doesn't come to God to lie about you. He comes to God to tell the truth about you. I want you to think about that for just a second. We're sinners. We, we put on filthy rags. Filthy garments is what we wear. Satan, it, he doesn't have to go to God and lie about us. He didn't have to say, you know, Anthony is, a, um, Anthony is an alcoholic. Anthony's not an alcoholic. Anthony lies, though. Anthony's a liar. That's a true, that's a true statement about me, right? I, I, I mean, I try not to. I'm not, try, I'm not trying my best not to lie. But that is something I've struggled with, right? Anthony's prideful. Anthony's, Anthony's uh, selfish. Anthony... Does, 
Those are true statements about me. I can't, he can't come, he's not come to me and say, Anthony's a murderer, he's killed 15 people. I haven't, that's a, that's a lie. God knows it's a lie. Satan doesn't have to lie about us. Satan can accuse us for exactly who we are. And here's the thing, because we are sin is who we are. But here's something incredible that happens. I, I, love, I love how God's word is so, so good. So Satan stands there to accuse him. Then guess what happens next? A divine advocate shows up. Listen to what happens, this is so good. He came forward to take up Joshua's case for him, did it so powerfully, Joshua received new garments and a new ministry. You know what, that, that is a, a picture of exactly what Jesus did for us. We are standing on trial in front of God Almighty, filthy garments. I mean, filthy garments. We, we could not, Satan is right here to accuse us. Our advocate shows up and says, you can't accuse him and puts on brand new garments and gives us a new work and a new ministry. That is, that is the picture of, of what Jesus is to us, what he's done for us. But here's the even crazier part. So this vision isn't about the church. This is about the day when Israel would be restored. This is to the people of Israel. Don't forget, this is a, this, the, the Bible is, it was not written to us. The Bible is written for us. The Bible was written to the people that it was written to. The prophecies were written to them for us to understand and grasp. It's a primarily Jewish document, and so we have to know the context, otherwise we don't understand the full richness. And I'm telling you, the more I see the full richness of the Bible, the greater my relationship is with the Lord. He's not saying, hey, Anthony, you were standing before Satan and doing this. Instead, he's saying, I will restore all things. Don't, don't shrink me down to just trying to fix your life. I'm not just trying to fix your life. I'm restoring all things back to my glory and who I am. How he does that is through the person of Jesus, the advocate. And so he's telling the people here, you're, gonna, you're in filthy rags, but there is a, a faith that you have to have that you can't clean yourself up. It's part of the reason sacrifices would go on, right? Whenever you took a sacrifice to the temple, you would put the sacrifice on the altar and you would kill that sacrifice and you would, you would burn it up and it was an offering to the Lord. And what you did was you said, I'm transferring all the things I've done wrong, putting it on this substitute, and letting this substitute pay the penalty for my sins. That's what you would do in the religious rites and rituals. So this is a, um, a, a piece, an understanding that I, all my filthy rags are being clothed. I'm going to put them on this, this sacrifice. They're going to burn them up. So I've got some pure rags. I'm going to stand before God pure and holy. So this great, incredible things. But this is the point where, where God says, I'm going to put a, a new garment on Israel, the people of God, and uh, deal with their sin. They're going to stand before him, and an advocate will show up. There'll be a spiritual rebirth of the people. Now, this hasn't happened yet fully. This is coming in the days. Now, that's where I'm not going to get into a lot of eschatology today because there's some differing opinions. I, I'll be honest, there's some places um, in this scripture that as I was doing all this research and study, I'm learning from the smartest minds, right? I'm reading books and commentaries and of the smartest people in the world, and some of them I disagree with. And I'm, I'm probably wrong because they're way smarter than me, but I'm, I'm telling you just my understanding of God's Word and the peace that I get when I read them and understand them. So we're not going to get into the minutiae details of all that because, again, we're going through this survey. We're going to see here in just a minute how all this plays, plays a part. So you've got this, uh, this beautiful picture of Israel being restored to him. Then after that, you've got this, uh, this next vision um, of the branch. The branch. I love the vision of the branch. Um, because this is maybe, you know, each, each week I try to find something in, in the books that we study that's like the standout. 
Here's my standout. This is the one that, that jumps out at me. The vision of the branch um, is, the branch, by the way, is uh, there are, here, here's a couple of facts of Scripture. Here's some uh, Bible trivia knowledge for you. So the word branch um, has 23 different words translated for that in the Old Testament. 23 different words to translate what we understand as the word branch. But there is one word that's translated 12 times in four occasions. Again, I'm a numbers guy. You, you all know me by now. I've got all kinds of like, things in my head. There's one word that's translated this word branch. And it's the word that points to Jesus as the Messiah. The, the, the name in the Old Testament, one of the names uh, for Jesus, one of the titles of Jesus. So that word is Sema, and that word Sema is, uh, it's, like I said, it's, it's listed 12 times in the Old Testament in four different scenes, okay? Four different times is it listed, um, four different places is it listed, and it's listed 12 times in those four places total. So that makes sense, right? I think I'm making sense. Um, and uh, so if you, if you find those, it's in Jeremiah 23, uh, Zechariah 3, and Zechariah 6, and Isaiah 4. Okay, those are the four places this word is translated, uh, the branch. And it's capitalized, you'll notice, in your Bible, um, because it is a title of Jesus. Uh, you'll find that in uh, verse number 9 um, and verse number uh, 10. You'll read kind of about the branch. And so, um, or verse 8, I'm sorry, I, I almost, almost steered you completely the wrong way. Uh, but in Zechariah 3, 8, you'll see the title of the branch. Now, here's, here's what's crazy. Uh, again, this is you, you, most of the time, you don't see these type things unless you do a survey, unless you step back and look and see what it's saying. If these four different times this one word has used in the Hebrew language, sema, then you will find in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, and in Zechariah, and in Isaiah, there, there, it lists the branch, it talks about them in four different ways, okay? Talks, it, it, in the context in each of those passages, it points to the branch in four different viewpoints. It talks about the branch as the king, it talks about the branch as the servant, talks about the branch as the man, and talks about branch, the branch as Jehovah. That's the four different contexts in all those places in Scripture, okay? If you read the four Gospels, do you know the viewpoints they're talking to Jesus, about Jesus as? The king, the servant, the man, and Jehovah. The Gospel accounts, I, you, when we say the whole Bible is all connected, let me just tell you, it is incredible when you start really getting the richness of who, who Jesus is. There, there is no doubt in my mind, like I'm getting chills just thinking about it, and I knew this was coming. Like I've got, it's highlighted in my Bible, like multiple, it's highlighted in my notes multiple times. This is so crazy to me that the, the, the one word that's translated for this title of Jesus, mentioned in four contexts, in four different viewpoints, is the four viewpoints of the entire life, lifetime account of Jesus. Like, that's how the Bible is, maybe, okay, y'all just don't care. It's awesome. Listen, I promise, it's so good. Uh, so this is a, uh, I was hoping, I don't know, maybe I was hoping for applause. No, that's fine. Uh, we're, <laughs> we'll move on. Um, but it's a really, really cool vision. And we, I, I, how cool would it be to be Zachariah that writes this down? And then in heaven, he realizes, he's like, oh, I was a part of even the very life of Jesus himself. Like, they, they wrote the life of Jesus from the perspective that you gave me in this, man, I love the book of Mark. It was my favorite. Why? Because I, I, I 
prophesied to it. How cool is that? Like, this is amazing. I talked about Jesus being the, the servant, and here it is in this book. It talks about Jesus' life as the servant. It's really great. Anyway, so then he goes on to the next vision, because, man, these visions get, get, get better, by the way. This is awesome. So uh, the next vision, it comes up, is the, uh, uh, the olive trees, the two olive trees, feeding a golden lampstand or candelabra. Um, and so what the, the purpose of this vision, chapter 4, um, is the, uh, the, 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 the olive trees um, are pouring out oil into a lampstand or a candelabra, and it's, it's eternal. It's, it's like keeps going, so it doesn't run out, okay? That's in chapter 4, and um, it's a supply that wouldn't run out. Um, this is a part, again, I, I was um, a little bit reluctant to start connecting it to multiple places in Scripture, but Scripture's too good. In Revelation chapter 11, in Revelation chapter 11, there is a, a prophecy that happens, uh, and it talks about these two great witnesses that come out of Israel. In the end, in the end, okay, end times, I'm talking end times, Revelation 11, these two great witnesses, and it refers to them as olive trees. And they are pouring into a candelabra. In this scripture, you realize a candelabra or a lampstand is what shines, is the great witness. The people of Israel are going to be the great witness after I believe in my, in my doctrine of eschatology. I believe the church gets raptured out. And then who's left on the earth during the reign of Jesus after he comes and this... We're not going to give too many timelines here because it can get it can get dicey at this moment. But the people of Israel will be the light to the world. Then they will be back to what God originally designed them to be. How are they going to do that? By these two great witnesses that will show up that will be fueling this. They're going to be absolutely incredible. I mean, unlike anything we've ever seen, they're going to be amazing. And as we see this happen, that's what the prophecy points to. Now. We can look at more of that, or we can just keep moving. But those two witnesses will help bring God's name to the earth. They, Israel will be the lampstand that is the witness to the people. So there's, there's that one. The next one is the flying scroll. The flying scroll. Uh, the flying scroll is very large. Um, and as, as he goes through this vision, um, this is in chapter 5 now, moving right along. Uh, the flying scroll is very large. Um, in fact, do you know it is the same dimensions? It says 20 cubits in its width and, uh, and 10 cubits. So it's 20 cubits by 10 cubits. Um, that's the exact size. You know something else how it's connected to the Bible? That's the exact size in the tabernacle of the holy place. Pretty cool. Uh, so in that exact same size, it's a scroll. What does the scroll do? The scroll flies around and it brings judgment. It is, uh, it flies around and judges the land of the Hebrew people. They violate God's law and God will judge them for it. So this is God's holy law, his perfect law that is good enough and will enough to, and, and, and right enough to judge. So it's flying all over the Hebrew land and it is judging them for where they have failed um, outside of, uh, of, of God's perfect law. He then goes into another vision. And his other vision is a woman in a basket or an ephah or a, a barrel, a bushel. Uh, is this kind of terminology here, depending on what translation you're reading from in the, uh, chapter 5, starting at verse number 5. Um, he sees a woman get into this. This one's strange. Okay, this, is, this one's weird. 
but this woman gets into this bushel. Now, a bushel or a basket or this, this thing that's talking about is the largest form of measurement of dry goods. Okay, so uh, for instance, if you had a wheat, if you had wheat and you were um, uh, uh, producing wheat, you would put it, the biggest way you could sell it is in this bushel or this basket size, okay, which could fit a human. So it's a big bushel of, 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 of uh, container. So this woman gets in it and she's carried off by these other two women to another place. And so, again, I, like, imagine seeing this vision and like, say, asking the angel, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> this woman getting in a basket and she's being hauled off by two other women? Like, what's, what's going on? This one is uh, uh, kind of strange. Um, so this woman in the basket hauled off to Babylon, uh, that place that it says uh, Shinar is the place of Babylon. It says in verse 11, the land of Shinar. Uh, this is where Babylon was. Um, and again, there's, there is a lot of, uh, there, this is again a little bit um, probably further than I want to go, but there is a lot of, of hinting in Revelation in, that Babylon will rise again. And when it does, uh, it will be a, um, the, the place of Oh, man, I don't even want to say these words, but it, it'll be the, the, the capital city of, of the beast that will come, that will uh, try to, to ruin things. Um, I, I don't, anyway, so there's that. Uh, so anyway, she gets hauled off to Babylon. That's what we'll say. That's how that's going to go. Um, and uh, two women carried her off. Uh, and it's, um, it will be the home of wickedness again. Um, again, the, the book of Revelation envisions rebuilding of Babylon um, and it becoming where the beast's empire is. Uh, We'll get to more of that when we get to Revelation uh, in September next year uh, as we continue through our study. But um, that's another vision, so he's, he's hearing all this happen. Then there's another vision. I love this. These, these ten visions are incredible. They're so much fun. Uh, this, one's, this one's really great. Um, it's four, this next one is four chariots uh, coming between, um, uh, from between two mountains of brass. And they represent the four winds of heaven, or the four spirits of heaven, as it says, the four um, spirits of the heavens in verse number five, as it says. And the angel answered and said, These are going out the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So these are angelic messengers that are sent to take care of the uh, of, of end times events. That's way, 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 way out. So these four uh, angelic messengers, the winds of heaven, uh, go out to do this, um, and their their point, their mission will be the reason there's four of them, and they all go different directions uh, because they're going to take care of all the all the directions on a compass. Okay, so they're going to north, south, east, west. Right, that's the directions that they will go, with a special emphasis to the north. Now, here's where I really don't want to say what I want to say, but um, there's a a very special emphasis on the north that that is a is a pause moment. That's a crescendo moment. And that, I believe, there, there's, this is where a lot of scholars would, um, I would debate a lot of scholars on it, and I'm not a scholar, but I just, the, from what I understand about Scripture, and end times, and here's the deal. Ultimately, I don't really know, but uh, I just, the, what, what I know about this is like, don't be on the wrong side of God. That's, that's what I know. I don't know much more. Um, uh, this, uh, this set to the north, some people, I would reference back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which talks about Russia, at, which is the north of, of Israel. Some people would say this is Babylon. Babylon's not far enough north, though, in my, in my understanding. Uh, maybe God's compass is different, though. I don't know what God's compass is. I don't. I, he knows way more than I do. He, he's got so much more understanding. But uh, 
all, all in all, these are four, um, there's four riders on these four chariots, and they are the, the winds of heaven, and they're coming to uh, take care of the end times events that will um, uh, ultimately wrap everything up. These visions are concluded in uh, this chapter, chapter 6, by um, the crowning of Joshua the high priest. Now, priests were not ever crowned. I want to just make that very known. Uh, priests are not ever crowned in the Old Testament. Uh, the office of priest and king are separated by um, a divine decree. This was God that said this. this is, they're, they're going to be separated for purposes and reasons of, uh, of power. Um, but this is a picture of what we know in Psalm 110 of Jesus is the great high priest king. That's who he is. He's the priest king, uh, the order of Melchizedek. And so as we see that, this is a picture of that. There's a day coming where there's the priest king. And that priest king is, at the end of all of it, we're going to look and say he's the priest king. He's the one. He's, he's, there's no question in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind. And so that's how these uh, visions all wrap up. Now here's what I want to say before we move to the next part. All these dreams, all these visions, happened in one night. One night. Every one of these things. Can you imagine a night of this many dreams, this fast, this crazy? Like, talk about a last night. I, I will say this. Last night, so we have, you know, we have a sick kid at home. And so, you know, she coughed some in the other room. We're listening. We're hearing. And so I kind of get woken up a couple times. Kind of just frustrated, right? And so I didn't get a ton of sleep last night. And I was, I was woken up three or four times. I didn't have ten visions that were all insane. That were all something I had to try to put together. Like this is this is an amazing wild night. I, I don't know if uh, I, that's one. I, when I get to heaven, you know, one of my lists, if I remember my list, is to go walk up to Zechariah and be like, "Just tell me, man, how crazy was that night? <laughs> how crazy having all these visions all in the same night? Just wild." So after uh, after that vision, after the, all those ten visions came, two years later. So after that one crazy night, two years later, uh, we pick up chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8 uh, are the, the picture of what I believe are the disciplines. Two years had gone. The temple was built. Uh, life was good. Jerusalem looked more like a city again. So yay, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Then guess what? Religion tried to creep in. This is, this is weird to me. Um, I'm not really sure why everything's in the Bible, but I do know that it's good and it's beneficial for us to teach us, to, to reprove us, to fix us, to uh, correct us. Here's where in chapter 7 and 8 specifically, um, some delegates had came, come from the city of Bethel. Bethel, is, Bethel means the house of God. If you remember Bethel from uh, way back in Abraham's day, uh, it's where Abraham built an altar, great place. Um, but there were some Jews that were living in Bethel and they had a question to Zechariah. So they come and ask this question. And the question was about the fasts. Specifically, do we still have to fast for these events that led to when Jerusalem was, was destroyed? And so um, I, I don't want to jump into a ton of why they asked those questions the way they did um, or, or specifically which events they were talking about. They, they're, they're listed in there. You know, this happened and this happened. We fasted here because of this and this happened. We fasted here because of this and this Ultimately, the, the, the purpose be, behind this question um, was because they, they were asking if it's necessary. Um, and it was, it was more about their religious duties than, than God's um, ultimate word to them. What I mean by that is we can get caught up in things 
that don't necessarily um, impress God. So in, in their minds, in their, in their, from their perspective, they said, we're still doing these fasts that God told us to do for this. It'd be like if I, if I asked as the pastor of this church, uh, in the month of December, which we didn't do, so don't run to this. If I said in the month of December, what we're going to do is we're going we're to fast for, for 10 days together. And it's going to be so that um, our, our Christmas outreach um, uh, reaches, the, reaches everybody, right? And so that's a, a fast for a season for some purpose, right? It's trying to, trying to experience God in this way before this happens, okay? That's what's going on. These, all these instances were with what God did for those things. He said, I'm declaring a fast for this season, for this time. Well, these people said, if that made God happy then, I'll just keep doing it over and over again. And God's like, I didn't, I didn't ask you to fast 50 times. I asked you to fast once. I asked you to fast for this thing, and this is what I want you to do. So God didn't care whether, whether or not they kept doing it. It, did, it, it was no difference to him. He was, uh, he was encouraging them to do it for this season. So as they did it for that season, they came and asked um, him, they came and asked Zechariah, and they said, hey, listen, do we have to keep doing this? You know why? Here's what happens. Without a fresh word from God, without hearing from God, God will inspire us. Listen, you, neither, none of us have within us the desire to walk with God outside of God's presence. God is the Holy Spirit in us, puts the desire in us. Otherwise, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we are prone to wander away from Him. We're never falling into favor with God. We're never falling into obedience, right? We don't trip our way into, into God's exact plan. We have, to, we have to desire it. We have to want it. We have to go for it. And God put the Holy Spirit in us to give us that desire. Otherwise, we have a selfish, sinful nature in us. And what happens is whenever we try to take God's relationship and put it in our hands... We say, well, I've just got to make sure I don't, I've I got to be at church every single time the doors are open, otherwise God will be mad at me. That's not what's going on, okay? It, it, th- then we've, ta- we've taken the relationship from, I want to be around God's people so that I can in, be enriched by the, their, their impact in my life. I love God so much, I want to be around His people more because he, he, he dwells in His people and I can be around more of Him when I'm around His people, right? That's a desire to be around God's people. If you make it to where your religion is based on your church attendance, it becomes a chore. Then when it rains, when it's hard, when it's difficult, whenever it's cold, whenever you don't want to, it's hard to show up. It's a chore to you. God says, I never wanted my relationship to be a chore to you. I'm trying to tell you how to, how to connect your life back to me. That's why uh, Zechariah doesn't give them the answer of yes, keep the fast, no, keep the fast. Instead, he gives them a sermon, he preaches, and his sermon is absolutely incredible. He said, God did not ordain those, uh, those fasts to be burdensome. That's not the reason he did it. He did it so that you would take a season, connect back with him, so that you could then go through life with him again. That's what, that's what he's doing it for. He's not, he's not saying your fasts, <coughs> he, sa- he said, You're not, your fasts are not what keeps you in relationship with me. I'm trying to pull you back closer to me, and you need this fast to do so. So he goes through this, and Zechariah changes, and he says, listen, it's about obeying God's word. You should take care of the widow. You should take care of the orphan. You should take care of the poor, the traveler. Don't be evil. That's what Zechariah is saying to these guys who showed up from Bethel, asking, How, are, we, are, we still, are we still okay with God? And Zechariah says, be okay with God by doing what he's told you to do. Don't try to work and earn your salvation just be in the presence of God. And how do you do that? By obeying what he said to do. That's how this works. Um, 
and, and Zechariah did what he did, what he's done before. He takes in, in chapter 8 and looks past. This is, so, this is what's so cool. This is the preacher in me that really wanted to preach this sermon. Uh, but there, he, he looks past fasts because here's, here's what the, they, were, they were asking the question. How much do we have to take out of our life in order for, for God to want to be there? And Zechariah's like, what? God's not looking for you to take everything out of your life. God's looking to fill you up. It's like, so what does he do? Zechariah looks past the time of fasting to the time of feasting. He looks all the way ahead to when Israel will be, in, in chapter 8, uh, prosperous again, to the time whenever God's people would become a blessing to mankind again, like, like they were supposed to be in the first place, right? Israel was, was a nation to bless the other nations, to be a light to the other nations. Israel had, had since put its light out, and now Zechariah says, listen, there's a coming day when Israel's going to be a blessing again. So when that day comes, it's not going to be about fasting. It'll be about feasting. You're going to be in the presence of God all the time, and it's going to be amazing and incredible. And so at, at this, we look into part number three, which is the failures. We're going to move through these pretty quickly. Uh, chapters 9 through 14, the last part of this uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful book in the Scripture. Um, these prophecies were written much later, probably, than others. Um, there's a common thought, and I, I think I'm aligning with this the more I study Scripture. Uh, there's a common thought that chapters 9 and 10 are really about the Greeks that are coming. Chapter 11 is about the Roman Empire, and then chapters 12 through 14 are the last days. Um, but here's what, I want, here's what I want you to know. Whether that's a, an agreement through scholars or whatever, or, or if, I, if I've done enough study to make sure that maybe I tell you that I believe this is what it is. Ultimately, there is a theme through these next few chapters. And that theme is how those nations, how those, how those people all deal with the person of Jesus. There's, and let me tell you, if there's one thing in your life, the thing that matters is how you deal with Jesus. That's what matters. Ultimately, in the very end, it's not going to matter if you were at church every single week if you didn't deal with Jesus the right way. If you didn't, if you didn't put your attitude toward Jesus in the right perspective. Uh, we know um, uh, uh, specifically how, uh, how the Jewish nation handles Christ, and we're going to see that in just a minute. Um, we know that in, in chapter 9, I, I'm going to call that the, uh, the coming of the king. Um, this is uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, is where we get that beautiful uh, prophecy about Jesus on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'll read chapter 9, I'll, I'll read chapter nine verse 9 for you. Re Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt of the foal of a donkey. Uh, this is the scripture that, so I want you to think about this. We get into a, we get into a place where we, we're, we discover scripture together, right? And as we discover scripture, we have the whole picture. We have, we have both Old Testament and New Testament and the church age with the Holy Spirit. Like we've got, it's amazing. The, the gift that God has given us to put this word in our lives that we can... Do y'all realize, like, they, they didn't have this in Zechariah's day. They didn't have all this. It, it, it ended with that word for Zechariah. Like, that's all they had was that, that last word of his. We get to see it all. When the people in Jesus' time saw Jesus coming into the city on the foal of a donkey, on a colt, and people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of... It, the, the, the religious leaders knew this verse. And they were like, oh, nuh-uh. So what did they do? They told the people, Jesus' disciples, hey, you've got to be quiet. You can't say this anymore. You've got to silence them. So he, they tell Jesus, silence your disciples. Why? Because his disciples, everybody around was proclaiming the Scripture. 
that this is the king. This is not the king they wanted. They wanted a king that was going to be really like one of the craftsmen that we saw in the vision, that they would go and destroy the horn of the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted. But instead, they got this humble Messiah. They didn't get a military Messiah. They got a humble Messiah. Now, they, what, what, what they didn't know, which what we do know, is that there's a day coming where Jesus is a military Messiah, and he's going to come in and he's going to wipe the floor with anybody that doesn't, uh, doesn't agree to his, to his uh, scripture and his, who he is. And so um, they see this. So that's, that's a part of a beautiful picture uh, in chapter 9, verse 9, about the coming of Jesus and entering into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem on that donkey. And part of the picture around it, why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all those people were so angry because they were like, no, this isn't the king we asked for. This is the king we ordered, right? This one is not the right one. The next uh, thing he sees and says is uh, the second coming of Christ in chapter 10. Uh, verses 1 through 12, Israel will be regathered, they'll be redeemed, they'll be rejoicing. There's no more defeat, no more separation. They will be restored and it will be beautiful. Um, and again, this is Zechariah writing this later um, because here, here's part of, they, he, he doesn't just say, hey, it's all going to be great. He says it in a way that's like, if you don't, you're not a part of this. This is not okay. This is going to be hard because there's, the people are going to fail. You realize in the end, the people are going to fail and they are going to be on the wrong side of Jesus' uh, second coming. Um, we see in chapter 11, uh, the rejection of Christ. This is where um, it's, it's coming back to, this is what I was saying before about Zechariah. So you've got one that's like end of the age, one that's Jesus' time, one that's second coming, one that's first coming. So we went from the first coming of Christ, right, riding the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Then it goes to the full restoration, jumps to a second coming. Now we jump back again to the time of the Messiah. Why? They rejected him. The, the, the Jewish people rejected Jesus. They crucified him, right? This is a hard thing to know. So they rejected Christ in chapter 11. In fact, verses 12 and 13, I want to read those to you so you know I'm not making it up. Listen to verses 12 and 13, see if this rings a bell in chapter 11 of Zechariah. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Huh. I think there's another part of scripture that talks about 30 pieces of silver. Oh, that's right. It's whenever Judas got paid. That's same amount of money. There's a, another prophecy in there. They did reject Jesus. He was sold out. Um, in chapter 12, it talks back about the day of the Lord again, on, on down, the, down the line. Um, whenever Jerusalem has a time for war and a time for sorrow, you can read all that in chapter 12. Um, Jerusalem will be a burdensome stone, as the Bible says. That burdensome stone means if you mess, your, if you mess with her, you'll find yourself crushed by her. That's, that's what's coming. If you, if you mess with God's people... God's people will be a burdensome stone to you. You'll be cut on it. You'll be crushed by it. That's just the way that it, uh, it, it, it says. It's the way the scripture reads. Um, talks about how the, how the Hebrews will also uh, cry out for the one that they persecuted, the one that they rejected, the one that they pierced, specifically verses 10 and following in the last of chapter 12. Um, they will cry out to Jesus. Uh, and then we see in chapter 13... Now, this is going to get really cool again, uh, chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 13, we see that the king is compassionate. Um, I just want to read verses 6 and 7 to you. Um, listen to verses 6 and 7. And if anyone asks him, 
What are these wounds on your back? He will say, The wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. You know, as I read through Scripture more and more, um, I can't, I, it's all points to Jesus, everything. From the first to the end, all of it points to Jesus. And, it points, and, and the very center of Jesus is the wounds that are on his back. And how he was beaten, how he was scourged, how he was pierced, how he was crucified, and, and how that couldn't even stop God's love for us. He gave his only son so that we could have eternal life with him. And even in his house of his friends, in the house of his people, he was born a Jew. It, this was, how in the world are the Jewish people going to be so angry that they're going to crucify him and, and take his life? They didn't take his life, he gave it. But um, this gives us a, a picture in chapter 3 that he is both God and man. Uh, there's a, a, a Christology in here. There's a picture of who Jesus is, his character in here. It doesn't just talk about the cross. That's the wounds on his back. But uh, he talks about how he is also the king um, and his, his character of who he is and how he is God and man at the same time. Then, verse, then chapter 14, he's finishing up the prophecy. Uh, Jerusalem will be uh, surrounded by armies. And then at that moment, the Lord will show up. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. That mountain will become a valley. And for the first time, Jerusalem will be surrounded by water. Just crazy. River, banks of the river is where Jerusalem will be located uh, for the first time ever. And this is, uh, chapter 14 is, is great. And if you're a prophecy freak, you're, you're, you, you could live in, in chapter 14. It's so, so, so exciting and so fun, so cool. Um, but I want, I want to read specifically the last two verses of Zechariah. I like to see how... You know, I've used the phrase before, whenever the, the, the prophet put down his pen, right? I just love that idea that he's, he wrote it and he's like, now I can set this down with the full piece knowing that the Holy Spirit is done with my writing. But listen to what he says in verses 20 through 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy is the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord the ho of hosts on that day. These last two verses say one thing in, in summary. It all belongs to the Lord. All of it everything. It's going to be inscribed holy to the Lord. This is, that, that means holy to the Lord. That means this is what the, it's, it belongs to him. It belongs to him. There's a day when it will, and it, right now, currently, it all belongs to him. We just don't all recognize it. There's a day coming where everyone will recognize it all belongs to him. Every bit of it. It belongs to the Holy Lord of hosts. I am so thankful for the book of Zechariah for this time you've allowed me to spend in it today. Let's pray as we finish up today.